nice to see lots of faces here this morning. Maybe some of you were regular Surrey attendees, but you thought, I'm not waking up at 9 or going to the 9 a.m. after a wild night of partying. Uh, my wild night of partying. Uh, we brought New Year's forward three hours in our house. And, at, and then we forgot because uh, we snuck an extra half an hour in. So I don't know if you've ever celebrated New Year's at 9.30. It's great. You should try it. Then you go up to bed and sleep. Um, so it's good to see uh, you here. And maybe your New Year's resolution was to come to church. That's why I see new faces. Uh, that's good too. So welcome. I uh, hope it lasts longer than a week. Um, my New Year's resolutions usually don't. But um, we're going to be in John's Gospel today. I'll uh, be continuing uh, reading from verse 60 to 71. So we'll be getting through quite a chunk of John's Gospel. I will confess that earlier uh, I was really not on good form. And so I'm very thankful to the Lord for another chance and pray that it goes uh, better. Uh, these things happen. So um, we're going to ask for God's help after we read from verse 60 to 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, is going to betray him. Let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask for clarity. We ask for power from on high. We ask, O Lord, that you will honor your Son in our midst, in our hearts, and that we will rejoice that Christ is proclaimed. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, this is uh, meant to be uh, a New Year's sermon, and it is also uh, coinciding with the Lord's Supper. And if you think that I could ever plan that, um, I've got news for you. Uh, I would not be entrusted with a five-year-old birthday party uh, planning, but this sermon actually turns out as I was looking at it and thinking about typical New Year's sermons, I've preached them in the past. This is, I think, the perfect text for a New Year's sermon, and we'll find out why that is hopefully by the end. But also, it does coincide beautifully 
with the Lord's table. And I want you to keep in mind that uh, God's ways are surprising and glorious and he looks after us in ways that are maybe not so significant and meaningful to everyone, but I certainly uh, love the way in which everything falls according to a plan. Now, that is also the case in the way in which Christ preaches. Jesus is a careful preacher. He is a clear preacher, but he's not a clear preacher to everybody. In fact, you could say, if you were to take a poll of people who heard Christ's preaching, many would say he lacks a bit of clarity at times. Uh, He's a bit provocative. Uh, You know, I don't know about this preacher. Uh, He seems to uh, purposefully confuse at times. And uh, at other times, not only seems to confuse, but seems to... uh, get a little bit angry with some of his hearers. And I mean, if you were to look at all of the various criticisms that you could label at Christ's preaching, there would be uh, indeed many, I think, depending on the hearer. And that's what preaching is in part designed to do. It is to reveal not so much about the preacher, though that invariably happens, but it reveals a lot about the listener. It is... Uh, a soul-searching exercise. And your response to God's Word reveals a great deal about who you are. And that is what we find in this extended Bread of Life discourse. It is the longest discourse in John's Gospel, the longest discourse we find of Christ preaching really uh, anywhere. Uh, And if you were to look at this discourse from the beginning, you would find some clues as to why Jesus is not to the one who has eyes to see being confusing, But you could also see clues into why those who do not have eyes to see would be confused. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, notice the Jews are grumbling about him. Just as they grumbled about Moses in the wilderness and said, give us meat to eat, they are grumbling concerning Christ. Why? Because Christ has the audacity to say, I have come down from heaven. And they are thinking, which is fairly logical, How can somebody say, who is a mere human being, the son of Joseph and Mary, how can they say, I have come down from heaven? Did any of you, when you uh, grew up and went to school, tell your classmates or teachers, I have come down from heaven? Nobody comes down from heaven. You don't say, well, I think now is a good time to enter planet earth. I mean, I don't know if anyone would think 2019 to 22 would be a good time to enter planet Earth, but you might be uh, considered a little bit crazy for saying, I have come down from heaven. Unless indeed you actually did come down from heaven. So they understand this to mean something theologically rich. That is, this cannot be a mere human being. And if he's not a mere human being, though he is a human being, what does that mean for these listeners? Well, that's the problem. It means they're going to have to listen to what he says and embrace what he says. And they can't do that. So after they grumble, Jesus says, Do not grumble among yourselves. And I will explain to you now why some are prepared to listen to my teaching and receive it and why some are not. And the answer is given to us in verse 44. Nobody, and I mean nobody, can come to Christ unless the Father who sent Christ... So when Jesus says, I have come down, it is in a sort of concurrence with the Father's sending. Nobody can come to the Father 
unless he is drawn. And if he is drawn by the Father, notice there is a certainty of what that drawing leads to. There's not a sort of, well, he will be drawn to the Father, but then we don't know what will happen. He may embrace the Father, he may not, he may for a time embrace the Father and then leave him. No, Jesus actually says, if you are drawn by God, you will be raised up at the last day. That is to say, if the Father draws you to Christ, and the word, the Greek word's interesting, is the same word you get for the dragging the fish in the net, or Paul and Silas being dragged uh, by the authorities in Acts. It's a sort of uh, certainty of an event. They will be drawn to the Father. If you are drawn by the Father, you will be raised up at the last day. But it's not a kicking and screaming drawing. It's not like perhaps the fish who are struggling to get back in the water or uh, back in the olden days where you used to see mothers walking around with an ear in their hand and the ear was attached to a kid's head and they would be drawing the kid. That's not the drawing we're talking about. You can't do that anymore, right? I know that. And I don't. I want to, but I don't. This is the sort of drawing where, well, let me make some of your mornings, those of you in love. And those of you still in love. Uh, You think back to when you were first attracted to your spouse and you were blown away and, and you, with all of your heart, thought, this is the person for me. And there's a sense in which you felt as though, yes, I'm freely involved in this decision. I like this person. I love this person. I really love this person. But then you feel like you're trapped because you can't help not love this person. You can't just wake up the next morning and say, ah, yeah, what was I thinking? No, for them to say to you, no, it's over, would destroy you because you love them. But then love has this way of having a drawing, enticing power that is irresistible. That is the type of love that is given to us for Christ. It is a drawing to Him, not a kicking and screaming drawing. And it's a drawing that leads to resurrection life. And the reason these people do not understand Christ is because they have not experienced this type of drawing. So he's explaining why their response is like that. Now, as Christ continues, he will then emphasize a point in verse 47 that really helps us to understand what's at stake in the whole narrative before this and also after Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Now again, there's a lot of theology going on here. You are drawn by the Father, you will be raised up at the last day. And that makes complete sense because Jesus doesn't say anyone who believes may one day then have eternal life. They may do enough good things in order to stand before the judgment and say, okay, how did it all work out? Okay, I have eternal life. It's actually in the present tense. If you believe, you possess eternal life. It is yours. And nothing can take that away from you if you believe. Now, what does Christ say then? He says something he's already said. I am the bread of life. And he emphasizes the fact that your fathers ate the manna that was in the wilderness, but they died. It didn't keep them alive. It sustain them on a purely biological level, but it didn't sustain them in terms of eternal life. 
Conversely, Jesus is making a claim not simply about the bread that he is able to offer, but about who he is as he offers this bread. I am, verse 51, the living bread. Not the bread if for some reason, you know, we couldn't do the Lord's Supper. And I says, you know what? Next month, let's just keep this here. Next month, it's all done. Why clean this up right there? A month from now, we'll have this bread. I'm sure it'll taste fine. I mean, gluten-free bread you probably could leave for a few months, but that's another question. His is living bread. It, it doesn't die. And this living bread has come down from heaven. So he says, I am the bread that has come down from heaven, verse 41, verse 51. He reaffirms that and then says, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. But hasn't he said, if you believe you have eternal life? Why is he now saying, if he eats of this bread, he will live forever? Which one is it? You see, the point that Christ is going to make is that to believe is to eat and to eat is to believe. So the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now he's trying to open up the meaning of what is going on. It's not just belief in him, but it's belief in him as a sacrificial offering. Karl Barth, I don't suggest him as a theologian by and large, but um, he was asked once what the most important word in the Bible is. Probably asked by an American. They ask those types of questions, you know. Uh, what's the most important this? Uh, you know, the World Series, and it's like American teams. I, I don't understand that. But uh, what's the most important word? American question. Maybe Canadian too. And he answered Hooper, which is four. That's the most important word, and he's absolutely correct that Jesus Christ has to be for you. And if He is for you, everything about the Gospel makes sense. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is My flesh. Take away Christ for us and you cannot have Christ in us or anything else about the Gospel. For. Christ for us. And that bread is His flesh. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. Caiaphas justified Christ's death by saying it would be better that one man die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. For is the most important word in the Bible. Now, that's a nice sermon, I think, up until verse 51. I would actually be happy concluding right now myself. Uh, but Jesus doesn't do that. Notice they continue to dispute. So they grumbled in verse 41. Now in verse 52, they're disputing, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? How can this man say, I've come down from heaven? How can this man now say, I've given my flesh for them to eat? This man's crazy. Now remember, this is happening in Capernaum in a synagogue. He is what we might call pulpit supply. And it is going terribly wrong. That is usually one of the minister's great worries when he uh, leaves. So was I speaking about pulpit supply when I wasn't here or what's coming up? <laughs> uh, it has nothing to do with that, I hope, unless they uh, make some very serious mistakes, but I don't think they will. What happens? Well, Jesus is saying these things as he taught at Capernaum. You see that in verse 59. So 
That's the context. And they ask a question. And they've already asked a question and they don't seem to understand. So Jesus then, instead of saying, okay, sorry, I know that was a little hard to understand. I'm sorry. Let me reaffirm that really all that matters is that you believe and give a nice generic message about faith in God. And everyone goes away and says, yes, that was a good message. One must believe in these uncertain times. That's probably the even better than King Charles's awful, awful message that he gave. And it was truly awful. The Queen, she gave much better messages, but we don't have the ability to bring her messages back. So what does Jesus say? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Remember earlier he said, if you believe you will be raised up at the last day if you're drawn to the Father. He's saying the same thing here, but now he's saying things in a deliberately provocative way. You mustn't miss that. He's not trying to be uh, palatable to them. Pardon the pun. He is actually speaking to them in order to rile them up. Because any Jewish person with their law understands that cannibalism is certainly not allowed under the uh, dietary laws. There was no blood that was allowed to be in meat, much less human beings. And now he has the effrontery to say that if you want to have any life in you, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's craziness. And he even says, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Now what does he mean by that? Is he saying something now fundamentally different than what he's been saying already before? He said earlier, believe in me. You see that in verse 27. You see it in verse 29. He says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 35. And you look at verse 47. Whoever believes has eternal life. So he's been saying, believe, 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 have faith. They don't seem to understand that. And he's been very clear about the matter. So what does he do? He then changes the imagery to Faith being whereby you eat his flesh and drink his blood. He is drawing out of his hearers the judgment that is upon them because they don't have eyes to see. And he's infuriating them on purpose. And so Augustine says, believe and you have eaten. That's what this means. If you believe but he's using such graphic language to talk to you about the real nature of saving faith. This is not easy believism. The true nature of saving faith is that the just shall live by faith. The life I live, I live by faith. It is not a one-time act where you live by faith because you believed a long time ago. It is a daily living by faith in the Son of God. It is eating His flesh and drinking His blood. And so, as he speaks to them, he says, whoever feeds on me, verse 57, he also will live because of me. Must you live? Yes. How will you live? By feeding on Christ. And whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He is making big claims. 
If you feed upon my flesh, if you drink my blood, you will live forever. I will raise you up at the last day. You will have eternal life. It's promise after promise after promise, but it is focused exclusively on one person, and that is himself. Now, that is a hard teaching, and you see what happens in verse 60. Now keep in mind the context again. He has fed the 5,000, probably 20,000 plus people. They've said, this is the prophet. They've said, we're going to make you our king. He has established a megachurch faster probably than anyone has ever established a megachurch in the history of Christendom. And he keeps on preaching. And the disciples hear it and they say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? I think it was Mark Twain who said, I don't have a problem, and he wasn't a believer, I don't have a problem with the things in the Bible that I don't understand. It's the things that I do understand that I have a problem with. And I admire that honesty. What is so hard? Well, Jesus, in verse 61, knows in Himself that His disciples... Now, we're not just talking about... uh, religious leaders who are opponents of Christ. We're talking about people who had actually, in some way, made their allegiance to Him. They're called His disciples. But they're grumbling. And He says, do you take offense at this? That word is scandalizo. It's where we get the sort of idea of scandal. Are you scandalized by my language that you must eat my flesh and drink my blood? Well, What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? I am the one who has come down from heaven. The Father has sent me. What if you were to see me ascending to the heavenly places? Would you be scandalized by that? But Notice verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Which shows that He's not talking literalistically that you have to somehow eat His flesh. He's speaking spiritually. And what does it mean spiritually? It means by faith in the power of the Spirit, you feed on Christ. There's nothing really that difficult about what he's saying. So the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And these people don't understand. But, verse 64, what's the problem? There are some of you who do not believe. So if you read chapter 6 later today and go through it, look at how many times the word believe or belief is mentioned, faith, and you find there's like a sandwich that he's calling for faith, calling for faith. He explains what faith means and then tells them that they don't have this faith. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So then he comes back to why this is the case. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Can somebody of their own volition, their own freedom of their will, their own power, come to the Father in such a way that they will be guaranteed of eternal life? And the answer is absolutely not. Nobody has that sort of power and strength in them. I think it was Pascal who said anyone who thinks that somebody can come to God in their own strength doesn't understand what a man is and they don't understand what a saint is. They don't understand how bad we are, but they don't understand the demands of what are made of saints and what is made of those who live by faith 
in the Son of God. So one of the saddest questions in verse 66 and 67, His disciples turned back. Many. Many. He had a mega church and many of His disciples turned back. How many of His disciples turned back? We don't know how many turned back, but we know how many He was left speaking to. And we know how many He fed at the beginning. Many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. Can you imagine being that close to salvation? Having the Son of God before your very eyes and all He's doing is promising you goodness and life and love and peace and happiness and blessing. And you walk back and turn away from Him. So that Jesus has to say to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? I wonder what the temptation was like when everyone wanted to make Him king and everyone was believing and everyone was excited and they were like, this is the prophet who's come and he sees blessing and you see these churches where thousands of people are coming. And that's why, on the one hand, we shouldn't automatically say that these large, big churches are necessarily preaching a false gospel. I would never say that. But on the other hand, you can see it's very easy to fill an auditorium when you preach a certain message. That's a fact. And it's very easy to empty a church if you preach a message whereby people say, this is a hard teaching. And they walked away. Now there was a quote from a commentator, I don't know who it was, but he said, many would say that it would have been better that a sermon of this kind should never have been preached which occasioned the apostasy of many. Why did you preach? Why did you continue to preach Christ? Why did you do it? God was blessing you. Couldn't you see it was so obvious? And you see, what is so obvious to man is not obvious to God. Christ will have disciples, but they will be disciples on His terms. Many of His disciples no longer walked with Him. The real issue in the Christian life is running a good race to the end. It's a glorious thing when somebody begins and you encourage them and you praise God and angels celebrate. But running a race to the end is ultimately what matters because there are so many instances in the Scriptures where people begin well but they do not finish well. They begin by trusting in Christ. And Paul has to say in Galatians, you began in the Spirit, now you're returning to the flesh. And what is the solution? Christ offers it. Now, by way of application, I see time is going from me. I, I was away. For those of you who don't know, I was in South Africa. Sort of holiday, but I preached when I was down there. And you know, I, I heard the most disturbing thing when I was away. I, I hope I don't stand on any toes, by the way. But I'm not really concerned. Um, did you know that even in North America, there was a debate about whether to have church on Christmas Day? Now, this wasn't a debate whether we should be inviting unbelievers to church. You know, normally we say, oh, isn't Christmas and Easter a wonderful time? It's the time of year where we can get unbelievers to come to church. 
And we celebrate that fact because, hey, we need all of the opportunities we can get. And sometimes you get lucky and they do come to church just because it's family tradition or history. But this was actually a different debate. This was a debate by church leaders and churches saying, should we even have church on Christmas morning? This actually happened while I was away. I go away for two weeks and look what happens. We start debating whether you should have church on Christmas morning. Now, I've got about 300 responses to this. And some of them would be quite valuable, I think, to consider. But if you are in a church where you are questioning whether a Christian holiday, as it were, that celebrates the actual incarnation, and then you have the opportunity to do that on the day, and you say, no, I think I'd rather stay home with my family. You have a much bigger problem than simply church leaders who are forfeiting church. You have a fundamental misunderstanding of the entire Christian faith. And I don't think my words are too strong. You are a madman. The whole Christian faith is what? It is feeding on Christ. It is coming to Him to be nourished by His Word. It's realizing that you have no life in you unless that life in you is the life of Christ for you and in you who gave His life so that you can worship Him, not your family. You don't get to worship your family. The Gospels are clear over and over and over again. Who are my mother and who are my brothers? They are those who do the will of God. Anyone who does not hate mother and brother and sister and father for my sake is not worthy to be my disciple. Does he have to be any clearer? And who is the actual family that matters? It is the family of God that matters. It's the family of God that comes first. Worship comes first. I just cannot believe it. I'm glad I was down in a place where we didn't even think about, should we go to church? And I'm telling you, it's not merely that some people sitting in an office decided one day, let's decide whether we should have church. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of the entire Christian faith that you are put on this earth to worship God. And your presence can wait. And your meals can wait. And your laughing with your family can wait while you bow the knee to the One who laid down His life for you so that you can have eternal life. That's the type of Christianity that Christ is demanding. And the church is proving itself to be the types of disciples who in John 6 would have turned away and walked. And then finally, we do ask the question still to some extent, you know, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And I think we can now say, well, if by that you mean that daily I eat His flesh and I drink His blood, well, yes, I do have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because what is demanded of you is not simply just that you worship on Sunday, but that every single day of your life is a day whereby you are feeding on Christ. And so I come back to my point at the beginning. This is a New Year's resolution sermon. I have made very big claims to myself in past years. I have 
done dry January. I've said I'm going to start working out. This year I need to start lifting weights because I'm becoming weak and soft and losing the strength that I once had. And I've got all sorts of big plans over the years. And I usually fail after a few weeks. But there's one thing that actually you cannot fail to do this year. And that is to make this reality of eating Christ's flesh and drinking His blood a reality for you every single day this year. And to the extent that you eat His flesh and drink His blood and you believe in Him and fellowship with Him, it doesn't actually matter what other resolutions you make and break or keep. Because all that actually matters is what Christ says matters here. Unless you eat my flesh, unless you drink my blood, you have no life in you. But those who believe, I will raise up at the last day. Let us pray. O Lord our God, I thank you that your word is clear to us who have eyes to see, who have the eyes of faith, who have the lenses of Christ. But we pray that as we believe and as we live, we will believe and live as those who know what it is to truly walk with Christ and to depend upon Him for everything and anything that is of any value to our souls. And so please keep us in Him and for Him. For Jesus' sake, Amen.